Thank you, Spate. If you have your Bibles, I hope you will open them with me to Mark chapter 6. And one of the things we're going to look at this morning is rejection. Um, and rejection is tough. Rejection is tough. This, this time of year, um, some of our students may be facing that a, a teacher rejected their best efforts. <laughs> And they didn't make the grade they wanted in class. Or, you know, maybe, you know, when we think about rejection, especially in the life of younger folks, uh, we think about trying out for a sports team and not making it. As you think, as you get older, you, you may think of uh, being rejected by uh, a young lady or a young man that uh, you, uh, you may want to have a relationship with. And they say no, that's tough. As you're older, maybe there's a job, maybe there's a promotion, maybe there's something that you feel like that you deserve, that you're going for, and that rejection, again, can be tough. And as we think about it, if you think about rejection very long, one of the things that we know is that people go to great lengths in order to to not be rejected. And at two opposite ends of the spectrum, you may have somebody who's wanting to try out for a sports team or wanting a promotion at work, and they just put in hours and hours of effort to try to perfect their skill or to try to perfect their knowledge base in order that they won't be passed over, in order that they won't be rejected. There are all kinds of seminars and things that you can sign up for uh, to help you as you're going through your uh, work life to get the next promotion. And so there's one extreme there. Another extreme may be that the fear of rejection, the possibility of rejection, may cause, it does cause some people to shrink back so much that they don't even put themselves out there. So they may love the sport, but never go out for it. They may really want the promotion, but they stay back and they never put themselves out there because they don't want to feel rejected. They don't want to be rejected. Isn't the Christian life the same way? The Christian life is the same way that if you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have surrendered the call of the gospel, then you have been given a responsibility. You have been given a responsibility to to embody that gospel call in word and in deed and to go and to make disciples. And one of the things in the Christian life that holds us back and one of the things that's difficult for us and one of the excuses that I hear for people not not proclaiming the gospel message is the fear of being rejected. And think about it. That fear of fulfilling our responsibility of the gospel drives some people to just headlong into studying apologetics or or, or studying aspects of the faith so that you'll be ready to answer any question that may come your way. And what's interesting, and what we'll see today, nobody knows the faith greater than Jesus Christ, and yet people rejected Him. It's not an excuse. And I'm all for apologetics, but at times, at times, The pursuit of knowing everything keeps us from, as we go, being a proclaimer of the gospel. And I think far more, 
far more people, because of a fear of rejection, far more people shrink back. Far more people don't even put themselves out there. Far more people sit on the sidelines because they are fearful of being rejected. And the fear is real. The fear is real. If you think about our culture, if you think about this day and age, where the philosophies of our day, the, the, the mantras that, that we live by as uh, Westerners, is that there is no such thing as absolute truth, and that anybody who would stand upon a belief that there is an absolute truth, anybody that would stand upon a belief that there is a right and wrong that comes down from above, anybody that would stand on a truth that there is one way to heaven, is considered a bigot. It's considered hateful, mean. And who wants to be looked at that way? So naturally, there's this impulse in us to protect ourselves. What I want you to see this morning, and what we will see in our text this morning, is that being a Christian means that you're going to face rejection. Being a Christian means that you're going to face rejection. The first thing that we see as we come to our text this morning is that Jesus is going home. And when Jesus is going home, one of the things that we know about Nazareth, Nazareth is not where Jesus was born, but it's where he spent most of his growing up days. And what we know about this small town of Nazareth is that it had about 500 people in it. Small town. That, that Nazareth was thought to, to be about 60 acres. About two or three times the size of our property here at church. Small, intimate setting. And what would you expect? Jesus has been on the scene has been doing all these great things, he's coming home to Nazareth, you might think that they're going to have a potluck and a parade. The sign, welcome Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth, welcome home. But that's not what he gets. And I think as we read this text, we should probably have in mind, if you've, if you've, been, if you've been reading with us, and if you know the Bible... You remember not too long ago that I talked about that the first time that Jesus went home is given to us in the book of Luke. And you remember how that trip ended? It ended with them wanting to throw him off the cliff. And there was this really interesting miracle where he just kind of walked in among them and left. We should also be reminded as we've been looking at the book of Mark that one of the things that we knew is that remember his, his mother and his brothers came to rescue him. Because they feared that he was in danger. So we should know that him being in his hometown probably will not end the way that we think it should. In fact, when you look at verse 6, we see Jesus here and it says that he wondered at their unbelief. And as Jesus is entering in and as we get this account from the pen of Mark... What we see, and this is very important, what we see in verse 1 is that he went to his hometown and his disciples followed him. And this is very important to know that his disciples were with him, his disciples were watching, his disciples were there. And what do you think the disciples may have been thinking? 
As they go into this town and, and as Jesus in His hometown is being rejected, don't you think the disciples are thinking something like, are you people out of your mind? I mean, think about the narrative that Mark writes where the last miracle that we have is that He raised a girl from the dead. And He comes into His hometown and instead of getting this welcome, He's rejected. As we read this account, it starts off maybe as business as usual as we have been reading through Mark. In verse 2, it says, When the Sabbath came, here we have Jesus again, He began to teach in the synagogue. Remember, this is what Jesus does. So Jesus is here, and He is in the synagogue. And many listeners were astonished, and you're thinking, yeah, absolutely, they're astonished because he's, he's preaching and teaching as one having authority, right? They're astonished. And they're saying, where did this man get these things? Again, you might be thinking, oh man, Jesus has set them up, and now he's going to tell them that he's the Son of God, and they're going to believe. Where did he get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him in such miracles as these performed by his Hand. And it says they were astonished. But what we see next, what we learn from our text is the reason they were astonished. And let's look at these reasons of why they were astonished in verse 3. Isn't, is not this the carpenter? Is not this the carpenter? We know you. We know who this boy is. This is a small town. This is a small community. We know who this boy is. One of the things that's interesting for me, I, I grew up over in Harrison. And back in the day when I grew up, you know, the communities around here were, it felt much smaller. Now it feels like everything's interconnected. But back then, for example, if you were from Harrison, you didn't go out to Eastridge or to Hickson very often. That was way too far to travel. And so what's interesting is that sometimes when I go back or when I see people that I was in high school with, um, and they say, Lewis, what are you doing these days? And I tell them, oh, well, I'm a preacher. Do you know what sometimes I get? You? We won't go into all the stories of why that might be. Simply to say that my lifestyle that I lived among these people when I was younger, especially for those who were around my age, and me now being a pastor, those two things didn't fit together. And so they have to kind of recompute. Huh. Well, that's interesting. What kind of church is this? Can we talk to these people? This same sort of thing was happening to Jesus, but it was not because he was a rowdy youngster or a rowdy teenager. The same thing was happening to Jesus because as he grew up among them, he was known as the carpenter. This is what he did. And, and, and the word here, carpenter, uh, this, this isn't just woodworker, but this would have been more, it's more better, trans, more better. It's better translated. Sorry, Whit. It's better translated like a builder. Somebody who works with their hands to build things. And so when Jesus came and, and he's teaching and he's doing these things, they're like, no, we know who you are. You're the carpenter. In other words, there was nothing extraordinary that they saw about him as he was growing up. In other words, he wasn't being trained as a rabbi. He wasn't being trained as a teacher. And when he was 17 years old and he was going about town, he wasn't performing miracles. 
He was a carpenter. He lived his life. And this is what they knew him as. And so when he comes in and starts proclaiming something else, it's incongruent. It doesn't fit. They knew his trajectory and had an assumption about what his life would be like. And they were wrong. The second thing we see here, the second thing we see here is not only do they say, we know who you are, but notice that they get into, we know your family. We know your family. And it's interesting here as we, as we look at this, it says, you're the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon. Are not his sisters here with us? They know his family. And they know that there was nothing special about this family. I think it's interesting. This is speculation. But maybe his family, you know, they heard of what Jesus was doing. They knew what Jesus was doing. They went to rescue him. But maybe even his family tried to keep a lid on what he was doing because they didn't want to be looked at as crazy or out of their minds. So maybe part of what's going on here is it's like, oh yeah, you're some big hotshot. Well, we know your family. They live here right among us. And, and then... And then there's more. There's more. Notice the first thing that they said. After that, is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary. And at first glance, this may just pass right over. It's like, yeah, of course, you're the son of Mary. We know who you are. You're Mary's boy. But what we don't see, because sometimes we don't understand, is that in this day and age, this would have been a very derogatory comment. Now, surely, surely, you know, we think maybe part of the issue here is that, you know, Joseph had died by this point. But even if Joseph was dead, the custom of the day would have still been to say, Jesus, son of Joseph. So what do you think was going on on the lips of these people that they would say, Jesus, the son of Mary? We know the rumors, Jesus. We know the rumors that you're an illegitimate child. And the stuff that went along with that. This is a very derogatory statement aimed at the Savior of the universe. A dig at Him. We know who you are. We know your past. We know your mother was pregnant before she married Joseph. And who in the world are you? This all culminates in this whole idea at the end of verse 3 that they took offense at him. They took offense at him. This word offense means to stumble over. This whole idea of like a, a rock of offense. And think about it. Here was this man coming back to his hometown and he is preaching the gospel message. And he is preaching things like you are sinners and you need to repent. Believe in me. You are outside of the kingdom of God. And there is only one way into the kingdom of God. And that is through me. And when you understand what the message is, you can see why these people would have this offense. And they're looking at him and saying, you, we know you. Doesn't this remind you of the words in 1 Peter chapter 2 
that the reality is that Jesus is either the cornerstone which you build your life upon, or He is the stumbling block. Same thing is going on here. And the point, the point of this text is that the disciples were with Him and they were watching this. They were watching this. And notice what Jesus says. A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. And he uses this literary device. And notice what happens here. He says, except in his hometown, big, among his own relatives, smaller, and then his own household. And then in Jesus is saying this, as Jesus is saying this, he is telling his disciples, look, I have been rejected in my hometown, among my relatives, and in my own household. And then... And then we get some of the saddest news of all. And he could do no miracle there, except that he laid his hands on a few people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief, and he was going around villages teaching. We get this sad interaction that Jesus here, the miracle worker, the one that was doing all these great and wonderful things, now He is in His hometown with His own people. He doesn't do any miracles. They reject Him. And He leaves. And I think one of the things that is on display here, as the teaching is looming just just a couple of weeks ago, just a couple of chapters ago, of what kind of soil is this seed falling upon? What we've seen mostly is that the seed was falling upon soil that where there were thorns, that it would spring up and then it would get choked out. Or it was falling upon soil that was rocky and it would come, but when the cares of the world came, it choked it out. And here we see the seed falling on the hard soil and Satan is coming and he's plucking this seed away in his home. And when it says that he could not do any miracles, don't take, this as, don't take this as all of a sudden Jesus' power is gone and all of a sudden Jesus couldn't do any miracles. That's not what this word is saying. But I think there's at least two things potentially going on here. One is this. They had no faith and so they weren't coming to him. Almost, uh, almost along the same lines of, remember when Jesus was looking out over Jerusalem and He says, oh, if you would have come to Me, I would have gathered you under My wings. And also, I think another thing that's going on here in this text is that the unbelief is so great, the hardness of the heart is so great that God withholds His healing power in this town as an act of judgment against Nazareth. What a sad, sad reality that Jesus leaves and goes to another place. And His disciples had been sitting there witnessing this. And little did they know that what would happen next is it would be their turn. It would be their turn. You see, the next part of our text, it says that He summoned the twelve and began to send them out. And the thing that was going on here is what we called in seminary a practicum. Do you know what a practicum is? Some of you maybe in school had practicums. That's where you are in training and you go out and you do kind of a, uh, you get like real life experience with some supervision. And so what Jesus was doing here is that he was going to send these disciples out. Uh, They were doing real work, but under his supervision and they would go out and do work. It's a trial run. 
Jesus was instructing them. And what's fascinating as we look at this text is that we get another Mark and sandwich. And what happens in this text is we have Jesus sends the disciples out and then Mark interrupts this text with John the Baptist beheading and then we get verse 30 and 32. Look at verse 30 and 32. It's like somebody meeting with their supervisors. So John the Baptist is beheaded. His disciples... When they heard about it, it says they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And then we get the apostles, the other part of this sandwich. The apostles gathered together with Jesus and they reported to him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there were many people coming and going and they did not even have time to eat. They went away in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And you have to ask yourself, why in the world would Mark write it this way? And I think the reason that Mark wrote it this way is because what we are supposed to see from this text is the rejection of John the Baptist. And what we are to see in the life of ministry, we see it in the life of Jesus, we see it in the life of John the Baptist, this rejection, and we see it at some level in the life of these apostles. And I think... We are to gain from this that rejection is a normal part of Christian life. And that rejection is all around you. If you're going to live the Christian life, there's going to be rejection. And you have to make the choice of how you're going to respond to it and what you're going to do in the face of rejection. And I can't help but think as I, as I look at this text and I think about this text, about the early church receiving this text, about the first people to receive this letter from Mark and the world that they lived in, that they would have read this and read this in this way, in this order, and it would have encouraged them to go about what they were called to do as early Christians, and that's to take the gospel to the world in the midst of extreme persecution and hardship. That there is comfort in knowing that rejection is a normal part it's a normal part of this world. So I think this passage is meant to encourage us, and I think we are to gain some things from it. Um, we don't want to push some of these things too far. Some of the things in this passage is Jesus sends out the twelve are descriptive of what He did in this moment. They're not prescriptive of what you should do. And so some of the things that Jesus did is just for this time, for this day. And then what we're also going to see, though, is that we're going to see some big principles that are not only descriptive, but are prescriptive for us. And so let's look, and you're going to see at the very beginning that in sending them out on this trial run, in sending them out on this practicum, that Jesus uh, orchestrates this in kind of an interesting way and gives them some odd rules that they were supposed to follow. So it says that he summoned the twelve and he began to send them out in pairs and he gave them authority over unclean spirits and he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money for their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, do not put on two tunics. And so one of the things that he did is he sent them out two by two. And I think this was just a thing of Jesus being merciful to them. 
And that there was comfort in knowing that they were not alone. And we actually see this kind of go on through the New Testament as Paul traveled with companions and other uh, missionaries are traveling with companions. And I think this is a gift of grace of God in our lives that it's something that we should take forward, that uh, we should have companions with us in our journey, that God meant for us to live together with other believers. I think the odd thing to the text is when we see that when Jesus told them that they can't take any of these things with them. And you may be asking, what in the world is this? Have we been doing it all wrong? Have When we've been sending out missionaries, have we been sending them out with too much stuff? Should they go with nothing? No, that's not the point of the text. At other places in the New Testament, we see that they go out with things. We see that they are gathering money for missionary journeys and other things. The point of this text is that for this practicum, for this point, for this experience, that Jesus wanted them to be completely dependent upon their Father. Jesus wanted them to be completely dependent upon God. And it was vital that they learn this lesson, that they were to trust themselves to God and to His supply. And I think if there's any doubt if that's what was going on, why in the world would the next the very next occurrence in Mark be the feeding of the 5,000. Same message. Now, the next thing that we see in this text has massive, massive implications. Notice, look up again at verse 7. And He gave them authority over the unclean spirit. And notice, it worked. Verse 13, they were casting out many demons, were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And what we're not supposed to do is to look at this, these apostles and say, oh, look how great these apostles were that they were able to do these things. What we should marvel at again, what kind of authority do you have to have? What kind of authority does Jesus have to have that He can give 12 ordinary men this authority and they can do these kind of works. Massive authority. There was nothing special about these men and yet Jesus is so powerful, so authoritative, authoritative that He can give this power to these men and they go out and they do His work. And I think one of the things that we're supposed to take from this is this is the precursor this is a precursor to what is to happen at Pentecost. And do you remember the Great Commission? All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You go and make disciples. And what we see when the apostles go, and what we see in Acts and in the New Testament is that the apostles were going and they had this extraordinary authority. So much so that in Acts chapter 5, there were people trying to get in Peter's shadow so they could be healed. And what God was doing in the apostles' lives is that He was giving them these miracles, giving them these powers, so that the world would know that these apostles, these twelve men, with the addition of Paul, these twelve men were, in fact, God's apostles. Christ's apostles. But let me ask you this. So in other words, it was authenticate... You know what word I'm trying to use. Their office... Thank you. Authenticating. Thank you, Whit. 
Don't miss this. Jesus, the authority, the one with all power. What were the Sadducees and Pharisees seeking to do at this time? To destroy him. The apostles, how did things end for them? They were put to death, right? John the Baptist. How did things end for him? These apostles, these apostles were to go and to proclaim the same message that John proclaimed and that Jesus was proclaiming. Notice, notice, and hang with me here. Notice that it says that they were to go out and to preach repentance. Verse 12, they went out and preached that men should repent. Do you remember when we talked about John John the Baptist and John was in the wilderness and he was preaching a baptism of what? Repentance. And we said that Jesus coming along said, yes, I I, I look at this message and and this is my ministry. Jesus' ministry is a continuation of the message of repentance. And the question that I would have for you is, what about us? Aren't we to be about this same message of this same gospel that what men and women need most in their lives is to turn from their sin and to repent and to trust Jesus as the only way to salvation and their Savior? And oh, by the way, not only were the apostles given authority and power, but who else has received that authority and power not to do the miracles that they did, but to proclaim the message was it not, is it not the truth that when you come to faith in Christ that you are given authority and power to go and to proclaim the message of Christ? And brothers and sisters, as we go and we proclaim this message, we know that we will face rejection. Verse 10 and 11. And he said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off your soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And what is implied there is you keep going. That this is how we deal with rejection as Christians, is that we proclaim the message and if they don't listen, we keep going. It's not easy. And let me tell you a secret that I think the church has been hiding from you for a really long time, especially in this day and age, the one in which I grew up in the church, is this. There's no easy road in, in the life of the church. The road has always been difficult. I grew up in a day and time in which we tried to make Christianity cool, by designing t-shirts and creating certain types of music that would make it look more like the world, and so you could make this easy transition. And the reality, the reality is that we, as believers in Christ, are carrying a message inside of us 
that God wants to herald through us to a world and where this message is not welcome. And what this message is calling these disciples to, and will call these disciples to, and the disciples in their writings, and the gospel writers in their writings, is calling us to, is to embrace this challenge and to go with it. And they're not hiding anything. They're telling us it will be difficult, but it's what we're called for. We, we in this room, and who are watching, are called to be ambassadors and representatives and gospel sharers to Signal Mountain, to Chattanooga, and to the world. That as we go, this is the main thing about us, is that we are to be proclaimers of this Word. And He's given us the message, and He's given us the authority and the power, and we are to go with boldness. And isn't there a paradox in the Christian life? That we are to go with boldness with this message and yet our heart breaks when that message is rejected. That we are to go and we are to expect God to work. We expect miracles to happen in front of us. The miracle of new birth. There's nothing greater than that miracle. And we are to go and we are to share that message and we are to expect it. And yet, there are many times, there are many times, that rejection happens. And so we are to expect miracles. We are to expect rejection. And this is the paradox of the Christian life. One of the things that I've said often over the past couple of weeks, and I want you to hear this, and I want you to be encouraged by this, and I want this to fuel you as a person, and that's this. God is still at work. God is still saving souls. I met with a young man this past week who uh, was a candidate for baptism and heard just this amazing story of he went to a funeral for one of his classmates who was in second grade and the preacher at this funeral preached the gospel message and this boy walked out saying, hey, I prayed that prayer. I believe. I hear stories all the time of people coming to the faith Will you be willing, as you go, as you go to be a person who proclaims the gospel message? And let me tell you this. No amount of planning to share the gospel, no amount of planning that you can do, no courses that you can take, and I've taken some of them, no videos that you watch on YouTube, can insulate you from rejection. The gospel is an offense. It is God that prepares the soil. Our job is to spread the seed. And so one of the things that I think is very helpful is if you know that you're going to experience rejection, it'll help you as you go into this. And you can't prepare enough to overcome that. Again, Jesus was rejected. And we also can't shrink back. We also can't let that fear of rejection keep us from doing what we're supposed to do. Listen, the gospel message is foolishness to those who are perishing. Right? But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, 
Help us to be a people who go. Who as we go, are a people who are ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within them. God, as we have studied and looked at over the past couple of months, a couple of weeks ago, uh, talked about that if you have a testimony that you have enough, you're armed with a testimony in the gospel. God, I pray that you might prepare soils. That the individuals in this church, as they go this week, even today, as they share the good news of your son, that you might perform a miracle right in front of their eyes and that they see a new birth. God, this is our hope. Until we get to live with you in glory, that we are a people who are ambassadors and messengers for you. This is all possible only through your son's name. Amen.